I am sorry to be leaving, Brother Jollyon, but this book is a handsome gift. The Illuminated Manuscript. <laughs> Such an apt name! These illustrations are the perfect way to illuminate the message. So luminous in their gold and their silver, their bright colours, such oh, fine craftsmanship, such detail, such perfection. Oh, indeed, brother. Perfection is a strong word. But I venture these illustrations could only approach closer to that goal should they be made to move or speak, that they might better impart the truth to the reader, that the reader might instead become, I don't know, the viewer or... The listener. A fantasy, of course, although who knows what the future may hold. <laughs> Brother Jollyon, I have some ideas of my own. As a fellow student of the natural philosophies, I wonder if you might like to hear them. You would? Oh, splendid. <laughs> What I did was dangerous, but the damage was already done. There seemed nothing to lose. And besides, you weren't there. If I didn't try to put it right, then who else would? I just thought, what would the doctor do in my place? I wanted oh, to make you proud of me. seen libraries before, but nothing like this. For once, I was speechless. Of course, Jamie wasn't. I didn't know there were so many books in the world. But as you said, Doctor, they were from every world, and not just books. Films, television, all sorts of things. Everything here is unique. The only copy in existence. Welcome to the Koslova Collection, an unexampled assemblage of over seven billion artifacts gathered by our benefactor, Count Nikolai Koslova. Read, watch, and listen to whatever you wish. Recording devices are strictly prohibited. Oh, uh, uh, that's all right. Uh, we, we don't plan to record anything, do we? On leaving, Patrons with eidetic recall will have their memories erased by mind rubbers. Please enjoy your visit. I didn't like the sound of that. It seemed rather personal. But I didn't have time to worry because... Ah! See this, Zoe? The phenomenon I need to explore. It's around here somewhere. Which is when I suggested that if you and Jamie were busy, I might do some research of my own. Don't wander too far, Zoe. This library covers the entire asteroid. I won't. I didn't tell you why I wanted to do my own research, did I? 
It was just because, well, I was a little embarrassed. I wonder what would impress him most. Oh, there's so much. Goodness, the Carcass Adventure Hour. Oh, I haven't seen that since... Oh... This should be it. You are now entering the VHS section. Video Home System, a popular storage and playback medium from the late 20th century. Oh no, that's not what I want. Oh yes, this is the one. Ah, <laughs> clever devil you. Hello there. Oh, um. Ah, <coughs> yes, hello there. Wait. You looking for something? Oh, just browsing. It's a super collection, isn't it? I wonder there aren't more people here. Well, they don't let any old riffraff in. Just scholars and researchers like me. <laughs> what brings you here? My friend, the doctor. Oh, he's a kind of scholar, I suppose. The doctor? Yes. Unusual name. <laughs> he's uh, here researching, is he? That's right. Well, I shouldn't really say what. It's a secret. Of course, yes. <laughs> what about you? You seem an intelligent, inquisitive young lady. On a quest of your own, perhaps? In a sense. It's not that the Doctor doesn't respect me, you understand. He has great regard for my mathematical skills, and science and logic in general. He calls me his little computer. Oh, yes. But uh, it doesn't seem to be enough. He sometimes pokes fun at my lack of cultural knowledge. Oh, what a nasty man. No, not at all. He just wants me to be, how does he put it, a more well-rounded person. My knowledge of history, for example. My academic grades were excellent. I'm sure they were. But he says I lack understanding. And he's right. When we visited different times in history, I realize I only know the names and dates, not what it was like to live in those times. This doctor has a time machine. <laughs> How delightful. Anyway, I thought I could use our visit here to experience some popular culture, rather than just the high art I was taught about. Well, these barriers between high and low culture are a bit silly, don't you think? And look at me. I like Shakespeare, but I also like a nice evening in front of the telly. Why choose? Well, if you have the choice. I used to watch television as a child. But once they took me off to the Elite program... Oh, you poor thing. The Carcass Adventure Hour was my favourite. I noticed they have an episode of it here, but... Well, perhaps that's not the best way to spend my time. What's your name, my dear? Zoe. Well, mine is... well... <laughs> I shall follow your friend's lead and simply use my title. You can call me The Monk. Oh, pleased to meet you. As it happens, Zoe, I too have a time machine. Really? I was actually planning on taking a little trip this afternoon through the history of the planet Earth, which makes me wonder... Yes? Perhaps you'd like to come with me? Come with you? Learn a few things first-hand. 
I mean, you could stay here and watch the carcass show all afternoon. But wouldn't it be better to meet history face to face? Face to face? Look it in the eye and say, I am not afraid. Well, I'm not afraid. Then what's the problem? Think how impressed your doctor will be. This time machine of yours, you can control it. Oh, goodness me, yes. What sort of irresponsible idiot would fly around in a time machine they couldn't control? <laughs> well then, I'd love to. I was a bit excitable, I'm afraid. Suggesting all sorts of places we could go. I think it was the novelty of being able to choose where we land, rather than just hoping for the best. In the end, though, the monk chose for me. He said we were going to the year 1282, to a monastery in the city of Oxford, to meet one of the greats. Oh! Your TARDIS has changed shape! It looks like part of the Abbey. Yes, that's the idea. Blends into its new time and place, as we must in turn. <laughs> Does the doctor's not? Uh, no, not really. It always looks like a tall blue box. There's a period of a few decades on the planet Earth where it doesn't attract attention, but everywhere else, well, it's quite embarrassing, actually. Very sloppy. He calls himself a time loop. Right, well, come on then. Let's meet Roger. Roger? Roger Bacon. A religious friar of the Franciscan order, best remembered for his philosophical work, which largely concerned the study of nature through empirical observation. Yes, Ellie. That Roger Bacon. Isn't he essentially a medieval thinker? Oh, I'm sure we'll find Friar Bacon more open-minded than that. In My Philosophy, with Mervyn Banks. Good morning. With me in the studio, I have medieval historian Jessica Fudge. Oh, good morning, Mervyn. Today's topic is the philosopher Roger Bacon. Miss Fudge, Roger Bacon's often thought of as essentially a medieval thinker. To what extent do you agree with that assessment? Well, not at all, Mervyn. Bacon made a great many breakthroughs that were not appreciated at the time, uh, but are now recognised as major stepping stones on the path to modernity. Would you give us an example? Well, take his work in light and vision. It's well known that Bacon added the study of optics to the traditional quadrivium, but what is less known is that he greatly advanced our understanding of photography. In that respect, he built upon the work of a little-known 11th century scholar, didn't he? Oh, that's right. Julian the Visionary, an obscure figure who studied at a monastery in Northumbria. His own work is long since lost. But in Bacon's notes, he describes Brother Jolian's far-sightedness in imagining a world where biblical and philosophical texts broke free from the two-dimensional domain of the illustrated manuscript 
and into the realm of moving photorealistic depiction. What's fascinating about Bacon's breakthrough, I find, is the importance he places on a single meeting with two rather unusual scholars. Oh, that's right. The boy and the monk, as they're known in history. Puer et monarchus, indeed. Indeed. If I might read from Bacon's diaries. On this morning, the fraternity mass had been spoken, fast had been broken, and I returned to my chambers to begin work only to find therein two unexpected and unusual visitors. One wore the garb of a monk, of which order I knew not, and of which faith I was scarcely more certain, him being a fellow of eccentric air. His ward, a pop almost of adult years, but with the unbroken voice of a piping soprano, was all curiosity. My instinct was to have the impudent fellow ejected and possibly horsewhipped, but somehow his foolish talk compelled me to listen, and as I listened, I began to perceive a mind with notions similar to, but it pained me to realise, somewhat in advance of, my own. His suggestions for further avenues of study drew my mind's eye like far-off beacons in the night. Such inspirations suggested either individual genius or knowledge of texts to which no other has access. But frankly, I cared not which. How fascinating. To see what someone of almost comparable intelligence to mine could do with such limited resources. There you are. You've learned something already. I must say, I was surprised at Bacon's understanding of photosensitive materials. Yeah, I told you, ahead of his time. But in the 13th century? Surely that wasn't known about for another few hundred years. Oh, Zoe, Zoe, you said yourself, your knowledge of history is about as reliable as the Doctor's TARDIS. <laughs> yes, I suppose so. It's his fault anyway, letting your education suffer because he prefers to treat history as a thing park. <laughs> oh, it's not like that, really. It's just that... We always seem to be in such a rush. You're too busy running from the monsters. That is a large part of it, yes. <laughs> well, let's see how you get on with lesson two. Our next stop was the year 1511, a magnificent manor house, home to someone I'd never heard of. You've not heard of Sir Thomas Northover? Really? One of the pioneers of the age. Painter, philosopher, engineer, bit of a dabbler, really. I like dabblers. Sir Thomas was pleased to welcome us into his home, on the understanding that the monk was there to talk natural philosophy rather than theology. As we walked down the long gallery, on our way to Sir Thomas's study, he talked us through the paintings of his ancestors. I noticed the realism of the portraits increasing as time went on. The brush strokes became finer, the use of colour and perspective more naturalistic, until we reached Sir Thomas's grandfather. Goodness! What a wonderful portrait! Oh, it's so realistic! 
It could almost be... I was about to say a photograph, but stopped myself just in time. I was surprised then, when Sir Thomas himself finished my sentence with exactly those words. How can they be photographs? Well, Sir Thomas is a rich man. I didn't mean... You must stop underestimating people just because they had the misfortune to be born in a less advanced age. Yes, they dress funny and smell a bit, but that doesn't mean they're barbarians. It was a bit of a worry to think that my knowledge of history was that bad, but I brushed it to one side. We followed Sir Thomas to his study, where he told us some of the things that he liked to dabble in. One of his worries was the growing use of coal, which was polluting the air of England's towns and cities. I was pleased to see someone from what I thought was an unenlightened era taking such an environmentally aware view. And the monk felt the same. You're a man after my own heart, Sir Thomas. Cleaner energy is what we need. Imagine if that carbon could be converted into some purer form. But uh, what? I mean, uh, just off the top of my head, the electric charge, perhaps? Are you sure you didn't tell him too much? Oh, no, not at all. He was most of the way there already. I just gave him a little nudge. Now, let me see. Where next? Oh, this is all very interesting. And I really am very grateful. But? I just wondered if we could meet someone a bit more... colourful. Colourful, eh? As much as I like scientists, maybe someone more artistic. I am supposed to be expanding my cultural horizons after all. Mm, it's as if you're reading my mind. Is it? <laughs> you wait. This next one will blow your socks off. <laughs> nice landing right in the middle of the pit. It looks flat to me. Well, technical term. Where do you think we are? Uh, a raised platform at one end. Oh, a stage? Surrounded by three tiers of seating galleries. Oh, it's a theatre, yes? It is. Well done. Do you know which theatre? I don't know many. Uh, the new Regency? Does it look new? Oh, the, uh... The old Vic. Right direction, but still not old enough. Now, look at the shape. Eh? The wooden O. Oh! That's right! The globe! In all its icosahedral glory! And what year is this? The year of their lords, 1601. Then, are we going to meet... Yes? William Shakespeare? Got it in one! Allow me to introduce the Bard of Avon! England's national poet, a man of such linguistic invention he spelt his own name 16 different ways. William, look at the poetry, not at the bold spot, Shakespeare. I wonder what he's working on. If it's 1601, it could be Hamlet. Yeah, that'd be good, wouldn't it? Right, come on, let's say hello. 
I couldn't see anyone who looked like Shakespeare, so we approached the man who seemed to be in charge. He introduced himself as Richard Burbage, co-owner of the theatre, along with five other men whose names I didn't recognise. We asked about the other actors, about the writers they employed, but Shakespeare's name wasn't among them. The monk seemed as confused as I was. This is all very well, my good man, but what of William Shakespeare? But Burbage merely looked confused. He had never, he said, heard of such a man. And with that, he politely bade us good day. Unless we wished to stay and watch Philip Trumpton's new play, The Devilish Duchess of Wicklow. Philip Trumpton? Philip Trumpton? Who is he? I've never heard of him. I don't want Philip Trumpton and his repertoire of tedious-like farces. I want Will. Oh, where are you? It says there, Shakespeare never left Stratford. I wonder why. <laughs> Presumably because he's working all hours in the family business to support his seven children. Seven? What are you doing, Will? You're supposed to be churning out plays, not babies. Married to Anne Waitley. Uh, I thought Shakespeare's wife was Anne Hathaway. Oh, well, that explains it. It does? Anne Waitley was Will's first love. Some say his true love. But as one day he'll remind us, the course of true love never was much cop. He makes one silly mistake and gets lumbered with an H for the rest of his natural. You're saying that's why he comes to London? Yes, any excuse to get away from her. So, you think he's happier this way? Who cares? I'm not, are you? Well, I... Great artists must suffer for their art, Zoe. The tragedy of William Shakespeare is that, well, for the rest of humanity to enjoy his work, he must suffer Anne Hathaway. Uh, no two ways about it. We're going to need to fix this, and pronto. Street, Stratford-upon-Avon, 25th of August, 1582. The Shakespeare's are downstairs, so don't clomp about. I don't clomp about. So, why are we here? Oh, you want Shakespeare returned to his position at the summit of English theatre, don't you? Well, yes. Well, that's why we're here. Now, let's see. Aha! Yes, that should do it. Is that a light? Yes, I've taken it out of his desk lamp. <laughs> That'll scupper his plans for the evening. I don't understand. All work and no play, our Will. By the look of these papers, he intends to stay in, writing sonnets. Whereas history records, this is the night he meets Anne Hathaway. Yes, but... So without his lamp to write by, he'll have to find something else to do. <laughs> With any luck, he'll pop down the pub, drown his sorrows, meet the voluptuous Miss Hathaway, and, well, let's just say they waste no time in getting acquainted. <laughs> That's very clever. Yes, I thought so. <laughs> what I meant was, why does William Shakespeare have an electric lamp? Uh, eh? My knowledge of history may be a little shaky, but they did not have electricity in 1582. Oh, you worry so. Time's always in flux, Zoe. Don't worry about it. But... Oh, 
I think he's coming. Let's go. The globe, take two. Everything looks the same. Do you think it's worked? I do indeed. Look, there's our boy. Where? Oh, is that him? He looks different to the images I've seen. More handsome. He hasn't lost his hair yet. It's all uphill from here, I'm afraid. He grows out that mullet to compensate. I am glad to see history back as it should be. But should you be able to change the timeline like that? Well, it's as much an art as a science, really. It's just that the doctor always says it's extremely dangerous to do so. Oh, he does, does he? Yes, always. Oh, sorry. Was that a rhetorical question? I think it's more of a question of rhetoric. Has it never occurred to you, dear Zoe, that the doctor does nothing but change history? Um, I suppose. From a certain point of... Hold on. Do you know him? Know him? You seem to know more about the Doctor than I've told you. Well, um, yes, actually I do. Small cosmos, isn't it? You know. Look, I'll be happy to tell you all about it, but... Um, Where are you going? I've got some business to attend to. Business? You have fun. Go introduce yourself to Will. Go on, yes. Oh, get him to sign this. What is it? My most treasured possession. The very first, first folio. Uh, okay. Welcome to the Plays the Thing. I'm Jill Cohen. Tonight, as the London stage prepares to welcome Kanye West in the first all-rap version of Hamlet, we look at the evolution of this seminal work throughout the years. With me is Jasper Commode. Good evening. Jasper, what do you make of Hamlet? Well... Personally, my main impression is that it's very, very long. Well... Yes, it is long. It's the longest play in the canon. Hamlet himself has more lines than any other Shakespearean role. So. Oh, never mind the actor. It's the audience I feel sorry for. They just don't put in enough loo breaks, do they? As you say, there have been many versions of Hamlet, including in Shakespeare's own lifetime. And the chairs are so uncomfortable. How people can bear to go to the theatre, I don't know. Some of us have young children. The first to be published was Q1, the so-called Bad Quarto, almost certainly based on the faulty recollection of an actor in the original production. This was followed by the superior Q2, and after Shakespeare's death, F1, the first folio. All four hours of it. And there are many subsequent variations, too. No, oh, there are. Of course, we shouldn't forget the version that many scholars believe was actually the original. This is the mysterious C1. Mm, the version known only as the camera script. I had no idea where the monk had gone, but I was happy to leave him to it. 
I was more interested in meeting the man who, nearly 500 years later, was still considered the greatest writer of all time. Mr Shakespeare? Hmm? Yes? Who are you? Just a visitor. Visitor? This is a working theatre. Burbage, did you let this girl in? Mr Shakespeare, I'm not a fan. Oh, well, can't please everyone, I suppose. Oh, that came out wrong. I'm not, not a fan. What I mean is, I, uh, I admire your work very much. But I haven't just come for a selfie. A what? A a self-portrait. Although, perhaps an autograph? I thought so. Right, just the one. Some people ask for a whole pile and then sell them down for a market. Oh, I wouldn't do that. I'm genuinely interested in learning more about the theatre. Oh, yes. You don't mind having the magic spoiled for you? Oh, no. I don't like magic. I much prefer to know how it's done. If you can keep out of the way and try not to trip over the cables, you can stay and watch. I know a little about theatrical illusions. To make the sound of thunder, you roll a cannonball across the stage, don't you? I read that in a book. Well, we used to, yes. It uh, wasn't very good. And you can make lightning flashes by throwing a special type of powder into the flame of a candle. Again, not so much nowadays. Don't want to set fire to the place. Oh, that's true. That happened once, didn't it? In a performance of Henry VIII. Henry the Eighth. I'm sure that was it. It was definitely one of yours. <laughs> I'd need to write it first. Not a bad idea, though. The public do love a good Henry. Oh, have you not... Uh, <coughs> well, never mind. Uh, so, you have newer techniques, do you? Oh, there are some great innovations in this one. Take the ghost, for example. When I make my entrance as the Shade of Hamlet Senior, I will be the first actor in history to fully realise the incorporeal nature of such a phantasm. Goodness. So, not just a trapdoor. Trapdoor? My girl, when did you last go to the theatre? Audiences nowadays demand much more. The medium's moved on, and so must we. The medium? This is still a stage play, isn't it? Ah, yes. But our audience tonight extends far beyond the geometric confines of this unworthy scaffold. All the world's our stage. All the world? All of London. It's a start. I don't understand. How? Really? I said we should have spent more on advertising. Young lady, our Hamlet will go down in history because it will be the very first production of the Tudor Broadcasting Company. The Tudor Broadcasting Company? The brave new world of television. I know what you're going to say, your family can't afford one, but I promise you, it's the future. It is the future, just not quite yet. I looked around. I had been so starstruck that I hadn't noticed the theatre had acquired some rather anachronistic embellishments. The men clambering in the roof weren't tidying the thatch, as I'd quaintly assumed. They were adjusting electric lights. And the thick black wires I kept stepping over were electrical cables, running down to where four large pieces of machinery were pointing up at the stage. Primitive, but undeniably terrible.
television cameras. Enjoying yourself? There you are. You won't believe what's happened. Oh, no. What? Look. Electric lights. Cameras. They're going to broadcast Hamlet on television. Oh, is that all? All? They've got television in 1601. History is in danger of being changed beyond all recognition. What? It is? <laughs> I know. Isn't it fun? <laughs> classic that we showed you just before the break. At number two, you voted to see Peter Purvis skidding in giraffe poo on Blue Peter. <coughs> but yes, we've got there. It's our number one classic TV moment as voted for by readers of TV Zip magazine. And we're going all the way back to the start. Yes, from 1601, it's William Shakespeare's classic original version of Hamlet. Obviously, the acting's really good, but the special effects are so dated. I mean, I know it was 1601, but the green screen they used to make Hamlet's dad appear. My hour is almost come, when I to sulfurous and tormenting flames must render up myself. It looks like something out of Rent-A-Ghost. <laughs> I love that bit where Hamlet tries to trick his uncle who's murdered his dad like by making them all sit and watch some programme on telly with the same sort of plot. It's well clever, that. There is a play tonight on television. One scene of it comes near the circumstance which I have told thee of my father's death. I prithee, when thou seest that act of foot projected forth by cathode ray upon the convex screen, observe mine uncle's face. If his occulted guilt does not reflect twice over in his watching eye, then change the channel, for my ruse is o'erthrown. But if the villain's guilty orbs do blench, I know my course. Mark this, the show's the thing, wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. So, there we have it. Your all-time classic TV moments from the last 400 years. We'll be back next week with our top 10 TV presenters, but until then, don't go changing. We hope you've enjoyed this opening night here on Tudor Television. 
Our service will resume tomorrow evening when we present bear baiting from Bermondsey. Thank you, everyone. That's a wrap. Well, that all went very well, don't you think? Bought a tear to my eye, I don't mind admitting. Went well? And a definitive soliloquy. No more arguing over where to put the inflection in to be or not to be. <laughs> I don't mean the play. I mean the fact that history is... Oh, it was you. Eh? What was? All this. Well, yeah! Who do you think it was? The interfering nun? All those stops we made throughout time, you were making small changes to history. Well, the micro-tweaks. And that's the art of it. It's like bonsai, only less dreary. But all those tweaks add up. And look where it's led us. Television being invented over 300 years early. Yes, I know. Clever, isn't it? <laughs> no! Oh, come on! You're a clever girl. You must recognise clever when you see it. Well, yes, it's clever. But something can be clever and also what, be... Fun? No! It is not fun. It's diabolical. Not the word I would have chosen. I'd go for, um, well, uh, clever. Can't really improve on clever. I take diabolically clever. Oh, never mind that. You can't just change recorded history. Oh, but that's it, though. Recorded history. And we all know who records it, don't we? Do we? The winners! History's always written by the winning side. Isn't it time the underdog got to say, hmm? What underdog? It's a metaphor. Look, if we weren't supposed to change time, we wouldn't have time machines. That's not what they're for. No? Well, any idiot can nip back and just watch the past unfold while they sit munching popcorn. I mean, that's page one stuff. But what, to improve it? It's irresponsible. And dangerous. You almost stop Shakespeare ever becoming a writer. Oh, minor blip, soon fixed. You need to look at the bigger picture. I am. There could be terrible consequences. A domino effect through history. Yes, and who doesn't like seeing a load of dominoes fall over? It's all in the preparation. All that patient, painstaking work setting it up. Then, one flick of a finger and you can stand back and enjoy watching them all topple. And what about the human cost? Human cost? Oh, no one's getting hurt. If you change the future, you affect the people who live in it. More and more with every passing year, as the changes ripple out through time. You have no idea where it will end. Oh, it's not all butterflies and civilizations toppling, girl. The fixed points in time aren't going anywhere. Your ripples just crash over them like... Uh, craggy outcrops in the stormy sea, or uh, something. Think of all the individual lives that will get washed away. I'm from the future. What will happen to me? You get to watch Richard Burbage's Hamlet on Netflix. You can't know that. Where will I fit into this new future of yours? Am I even alive? Well, you're looking well on it, if not. Oh, you know what I mean. I might never be born. Then I'd be a walking paradox. Well, it's possible, isn't it? Has the doctor ever taken you to visit your own past? 
I don't see what Thought that... so. And he was careful merely to observe. Or did he, perhaps, feel compelled to start fiddling with things? It's not the same Oh, thing. you're fooling yourself, my dear Zoe. The Doctor never stops meddling, and for the same reason I do. To make things better. Well, yes... But Only rather than having some fun in the process, the pompous old do-gooder is all about what's right and ethical. Makes you sick. I happen to agree with the Doctor's moral perspective. At least he has a moral code. Oh, what larks your little gang of social justice warriors must have, gadding about in your interdimensional virtue-signalling machine. If time can be changed, I'd rather it was done for the right reasons than than treated as some kind of game. Oh, Zoe. Life is a game. If you haven't realised that yet, you're not doing it right. The monk seemed determined to have the last word, so I left him to it. I was getting quite cross, I must admit. No, Jamie, I didn't go off and sulk. I went to find out the extent of the monk's interference, in case there was a way to reverse the changes he'd made. But the more I discovered, the more impossible it seemed. It wasn't only the audience at the Globe who'd witnessed the broadcast. There were hundreds of televisions in the homes of the great and good around London. And the whole of the monks' enterprise was backed up by an electrical power station at Battersea. As I walked back to the theatre, down narrow streets, illuminated not by the moon, but by flickering electric lights, I had to resign myself. The changes were just too ingrained. Been admiring my achievements? Did you know there was a power cut on the first night of BBC Two? Tonight, not a hitch. (laughs) Oh, how can you be so pleased with yourself? How could I not? That was the greatest opening night in television history. Who needs the Spice Girls? Who needs Richard Whiteley? Who? Richard Whiteley. You know. Countdown! Countdown. No? The doctor wasn't wrong about your cultural knowledge, was he? I've heard of the Spice Girls. Yes, well, with any luck in my new timeline, they won't exist at all. Anything's possible, keep them crossed. Who knows which tenet of your precious recorded history our lovely chain of temporal dominoes will topple next. And then I realised I had to put things right. And the only way I could do that was to play the monk at his own game. I needed to go back in time. Back to the TARDIS. I was just thinking the same. Oh, come on! Cheer up! I'll try. Where are we going? 1675, January 24th. Go on, ask me why. That's the Restoration Era, isn't it? At least it used to be. Yes, I fancy a bit of Restoration comedy. I don't think I know any. 
Will I like it? Probably not. Bit racy for you. They'll probably have to show it on TBC2 late at night, but, you know, gotta push those boundaries. Should we find a pub? I expect every pub has at least one telly in now, if only for the sport. Sport? Football. Badger baiting, public hangings, whatever they're into at the moment. And so we entered the first pub we came to, the Admiral Harvey. Pine to the hill, stout yeoman of the bar, and a small beer for the lad. Ooh, and uh, a packet of crisps. Where's your TV? TV? Television! King of the art forms! <laughs> the landlord seemed puzzled. But the landlord just shrugged and turned to serve another customer. Uh, come on, drink up and we'll try somewhere a bit classier. As I sipped the rather peculiar drink I'd been given, a man at a nearby table turned and whispered to the monk. Hey. He said. I heard you asking about television. I don't know where you've been, but you won't find one in a pub or anywhere else. Been gone nigh on 25 years, television has. 25 years? Yeah, and a sad loss it be too. Not that you'll find many as thinks that way. All perfectly happy with their books. Well, <laughs> them that can read. But some of us remember, don't we, lads? The other men at the table nodded, a wistful look in their eyes. You remember it? We were part of it, said the man. I used to work on the cameras at Broadcasting Manor. I was a sound man, said the other. Did best of the ballads for 20 years. Met all the great minstrels. A third put down his flagon and smiled sadly. I was a director. Did the squire at night with John Dee, bringing astrology to the masses. Great. And now what? We keep the flame alive. Find a way to bring it back if we can. We've... Uh... We've still got some old films. Nothing to watch them on mine, but we've got them. If you're interested, you can come on to one of our meetings. The monk's face suggested he couldn't think of anything worse. But the man didn't seem to notice. Back room, the Fitzroy Tavern. First Thursday in the month. Ask for the restoration team. The monk nodded politely. Then we finished our drinks in silence. Ingrates! Who? The public. You try and give something back and they say, oh, thank you very much, and five minutes later... But don't you think it's probably for the best? No, I definitely don't. After all that work, 500 years of planning, how can it be forgotten just like that? Oh, perhaps it wasn't the public's fault. Perhaps it's time trying to heal itself. To heal itself? My dear girl, time is the fourth dimension of the fabric of the universe, not a grazed knee. I don't think time is as abstract as all that. What about those fixed points you mentioned? I think time can only be bent out of shape so far before it starts to snap back. It's not an elastic band either. I thought you were supposed to be scientific. You're worse than the Scottish one. 
We'll see. Doesn't matter anyway. Ha! Yes, found exactly where things went wrong. All right. September 19th, 1650. Tyburn, a name synonymous with a fight to rid society of malign influences. But today, Tyburn bears witness not to the execution of a miscreant, but the destruction of forbidden knowledge. Oliver Cromwell, the Lord Protector, arrives to take personal charge of the business of the day. The Puritan Revolution, ridding society of unscriptural menaces, now has another target in its sights. Television. All literature relating to this now forbidden knowledge has been gathered and made into this huge bonfire, which an eager public is keen to see go up in flames. But not everyone is happy. That is outrageous! I've never seen such militancy. There's always one. He'd better not let the Lord Protector hear him talking like that. He may be a man of the cloth, but that won't save him. You just wait. I'll go back a few more years and teach Cromwell a lesson. There's a man with big ideas. But here comes Cromwell now. He's asking for a pure-hearted volunteer to step forward and light the fire. And who's this? A young lad has stuck his hand up. Lord Protector, please allow me the honor. What? And there he goes. He has the torch in his hand. This monk isn't happy, but Cromwell's men are holding him back. Television is no more. The future is safe. And so the flame is lit and the devil's medium television is consigned to the history books. Or rather, to history itself, as those books are also on the pyre. Who knows where Mr. Cromwell's axe will strike next. Some of his more puritanical advisers have electricity next on the agenda. Others even say the days of the cinema are numbered. Dare we say we hope not. But until that day, this is British Pathé wishing you all a very... Hey, what are you doing? What did you do that for? Because we're now a part of history. And that means the future we saw, the future without television, is set. You can't go back and change it again without creating a paradox. Yeah, I hope you're pleased with yourself. I am, actually. Think of all the fun you've cheated future generations out of, hmm? Dickens inventing the soap opera, George Orwell winning Celebrity Big Brother. Good. Ah, oh, so selfish. Oh, well, at least there's one thing you can't change. Yes? Hamlet was still premiered on television. <laughs> you can't take that away from me, not with any amount of book burning. Uh, I don't know about that. You don't know about what? I think I could take it away from you. With a few judicious tweaks, I think I could remove any evidence that it ever happened. Rubbish. Anyway, you said yourself, that would create a paradox. Only if I try to change the past. My idea is to make tweaks to the future. Is it? Well, get yourself a time machine and do your worst. I've got one. Here it is. Just show me how it works and we'll be off. Now hang on a minute. You've treated this whole thing like a game. Surely it must be my turn. You're being very childish. You started it. Pfft, there's nothing childish about games. Well, maybe tiddlywinks. But there are some very grown-up games. And this is one. How many goes did it take you, I wonder? Goes? To get Hamlet on the television. 
you made four stops, including the chap in the monastery. A masterpiece of economy and precision. <laughs> I think I could change the timeline back completely and entirely in three. In three? This isn't name that tune, you know. Three tweaks, and I'll remove any evidence that Shakespeare premiered Hamlet on television. And then, time will be free to correct itself. <laughs> time doesn't correct itself. Time does what it's told, my girl. Perhaps. I just think it's more likely to listen if it likes what it's hearing. Will you stop anthropomorphizing time? It's not a Disney character. Is it a deal, then? Three goes. Maximum. Right. Right! The game is on! TV or not TV? That is the question. <laughs> it was surprisingly good. Mm. Next on Lost, presumably incinerated, We've got a rare showing of the recently recovered 1964 Hamlet, starring David Warner. Phil Norris will be here to talk about the moment he found the film can sitting on a dusty shelf in Ghana. It's a great find. And for me, the only more desirable production of Hamlet is the original from 1601, which formed part of the opening night of the Tudor Broadcasting Company. Now, you might think after 400 years, there's no chance it'll turn up. For one thing, the original videotape was recorded over with the Queen's speech at Christmas 1602. And then, just to put a tin hat on it, the entire Tudor film and television archive went up in smoke thanks to that nice Mr Cromwell. But, despite all that, one copy of Hamlet survived right the way through to 1771. It was last recorded in the collection of Sir Richard Colt Bouvery, the famous antiquarian, who apparently had no idea of its true worth. This is what you wanted to see? This old tin? Yes! Yes, that's it! Well, I've no idea what it is. No idea what half this stuff is, truth be told. But it's old and it's rare, and that's what counts. I understand you aren't willing to sell. Oh, no. No fun in that. <laughs> Swapsies or nothing, I'm afraid. Swapsies? Yes, that's the technical term we antiquarians use. And you'd need to offer something pretty special. That tin thing is worth a lot to me, you see. It's said it was once owned by William Shakespeare him very self. I understand. Well, Sir Richard, I wondered if you might take this in exchange. But... But... Yes? That's a first folio. Yes. William Shakespeare's first folio. Yes, and it's signed here, look. Are you interested? Interested? In a swapsie. Well, here's the can. Enjoy it. <laughs> you gave him my book? All in a good cause. According to the computer, this was the last remaining copy of your Hamlet. My Hamlet. 
You're breaking my heart. So now the film is inside your TARDIS. It's effectively been taken out of time, correct? Correct. Then if my theory is right, the timelines will have adjusted themselves and there will be no record that it ever happened. Oh. Problem? Nothing's changed. The TARDIS database, the Encyclopedia Galactica, they still reference the 1601 Hamlet. How can they? Could my theory about the malleability of time have been wrong? Well, it didn't bear thinking about. I stared at the computer screen, desperately trying to think what I'd missed. And then, just as I was about to concede defeat, I heard a flickering sound from the next room, and what sounded like voices. Voices reciting Hamlet. What are you doing? Are you watching the film? Oh, allow me that small pleasure, please. Oh, it's just as good as I remember. Tis here, tis here, tis... Gone. What now? Well, there was a bit missing. Just then, the ghost. Were they performing an abridged version of the play? Most people did, you know. No, no, no. It was down for the full four hours in the TV Times. No adverts. Right, let's just have another look at that. The monk rewound the film and played it again. There was a very obvious jump, where the action of the scene skipped forward by 30 seconds or so. Someone had cut out a section. He wound forward through the play and found another cutscene. The death of Polonius. Then another. And another. They've cut out all the violence. And the love scene. And Yorick's skull. Oh, this is political correctness gone mad. There was a repeat in 1554, one Monday afternoon, when the cricket had been rained off. They must have edited it then. Those blasted Puritans again. Of course. The sections they cut out, they must still be in existence somewhere. That's why the timelines haven't corrected themselves. Oh, please, listen to yourself. I know you don't want to admit defeat, but you really are clutching it. Where are you going? We'll see. I was starting to understand how to use the computer database in the monk's TARDIS by now. No, Doctor. It was all very rational. It just seemed to have a more logical search methodology than yours. Aha! I found a reference to something called Hamlet 1601 censor clips, which must surely be the scenes the Puritans had cut from the film. According to the database, they were last seen in the United Kingdom censorship office in 1832. So that's where I asked the monk to take me. This is your second go. Yes, I know. And you're sure you want to? After this, you've only got one left. I probably shan't even need it. We'll see. The archive was old and dusty, and so was the archivist. He was very pleasant, but looked about a hundred and ten. 
and pursued his work with all the urgency of someone who fully expected to live that long again. I asked if the sensor clips were still in his care. He wandered slowly down the aisle marked accessions, spent several minutes poring through volume after volume of index cards, then returned with a small tin. Yes, they were. But no, I couldn't take them. Quite out of the question. A quizzical look came over his face, and I asked what the problem was. It seemed the sensor clips were the sole inhabitants of a category labelled miscellaneous. Everything else, he explained, was categorised and subcategorised to the nth degree, but these alone had defied analysis. I realised the problem. The existence of television had been so forgotten that no one had any idea what these little strips of celluloid actually were. I explained their origin as best I could, and his expression changed to one of shock. Audio-visual fiction, he said. Yes, I said. Then they, they cannot remain in the miscellaneous section, he said slowly. And yet we have no audio-visual fiction section. Nothing even remotely like it. He stared at the tin containing the clips, as if willing it to disappear. We have no capacity to deal with this item, he said, becoming increasingly flustered. Oh dear, oh dear me, there is nothing in the regulations about this. I coughed politely. Perhaps I could help. I was the curator, I explained, of an archive expressly dedicated to audiovisual fiction. Perhaps a transfer would be mutually beneficial. The weight seemed to lift from his stooped shoulders, and he pressed the tin into my hands, thanking me profusely. I took the sensor clips with me into the monk's TARDIS, which had disguised itself as a roll-top writing desk, and took them out of time. Oh, I don't understand. Hmm? It still hasn't changed. No? Oh dear. Well, never mind. Still one go left. Or as I prefer to think of it, only one go left. <laughs> Ought to be enough. I can only find one remaining reference to your Hamlet in all of time and space. Where's that then? A book published in 2018, Conspiracies of Silence, by Kevin Burbage. Hmm? Oh, what's all this rubbish? Kennedy assassination? Moon landing? Shakespeare on TV? It was a breathless and badly written chapter, claiming that the Elizabethans had invented television something that had been hushed up for hundreds of years, but which Kevin had somehow uncovered. And alongside the text was a row of tiny photographs which, though blurry, were quite clearly of Shakespeare, Burbage, and the rest in the monk's production of Hamlet. Now it's time to put on your tinfoil hat. Next on BBC Three, the truth is out there way out there, if you ask me. 
Kevin Burbage is familiar to many as a proponent of the theory that JFK was not the victim of a lone gunman, but in fact seven gunmen positioned at strategic points around the Dallas Book Depository. People complain that geometry doesn't work, but like I always say, you can prove anything with facts. And you believe that one of those gunmen was Elvis Presley? That's right. He was just about to come clean in 1977, which is why Nixon had him killed. But Nixon resigned in 1974. Ah, that'll always get you in the end. One of his most recent books details a conspiracy that could have far-reaching consequences. I was clearing out the attic one day and found a batch of old letters from my great, 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 great... Uh, I've lost count now. My distant ancestor, Richard Burbage, the actor. And in amongst the letters, I found something that shouldn't have been there. A page of tiny little photographs. When I looked more closely, I realised they were pictures of a production of Hamlet. But they weren't taken in a theatre. They were taken off an old television screen, an old-fashioned one with the curvy corners, you know, and the lines across. But, well, that wasn't the weird thing. One of the actors in the photo looked exactly like my great-great... Uh, looked exactly like my great-great-great... Uh, like, um, Richard Burbage. And another looked like William Shakespeare. And that's when I realised... It was William Shakespeare. But that's impossible, surely. Is it? Yes. They didn't have photography in Shakespeare's day, let alone television. Well, didn't they? Or is that just what they want us to think? And where are these photographs now? In your book, they're conspicuous by their absence. Yeah. Well, the day before I was going to send it to the publisher, these two people arrived in my house, which was weird, because the door was locked. One was dressed as a monk. A monk? And the other disguised as a teenage girl. They asked to see the telesnaps. Well, that rang alarm bells because I hadn't told anyone about them, not even the publisher. You don't trust your publisher. I don't trust anyone, Wendy, you can't. So I cleverly said, what telesnaps? And the girl said, those telesnaps, and pointed at the desk behind me. So I turned round to look, thinking I'd left them out, but I hadn't. And when I turned back, she disappeared, and so had the monk. And so had the photos. You'd think they were stolen to order. Oh, these weren't ordinary thieves, Wendy. They knew what they were looking for. Good job I didn't try to resist, otherwise they'd have me rubbed out. Who do you think they were? Illuminati. Part of the secret world order. They've been covering up the fact the Elizabethans invented television for all these centuries. It's our job to work out why. Why do you think it is? Oh, because, well, I mean, obviously, you know, that's what these people do, Wendy. Stealing now? Oh, tat tat. I do feel bad about it. But that man could do with one less conspiracy theory to believe in. It's not healthy. This is it then. Your last go. Ready to refresh the database and see if anything's changed? Oh no! Oh dear! My Hamlet stubbornly persists. Well, that settles it. I've won! <laughs> oh, it's not fair. Uh, should have put a bet on. Would have cleaned up nicely. What? Not going to shake hands? <laughs> Thank you.
Here we are, back at the Kozlova collection. In fact, you've barely been gone. Wonderful. Really, Zoe, you mustn't be a bad loser. Now, shall we find the doctor? I'm really looking forward to showing him a certain object and letting him know that his protégé, Zoe Harriet, the little computer, is partly responsible for its existence. What object? Now, Zoe, I cannot tell a lie. There was, above and beyond your highly optimistic view of the way time works, another reason I was so confident you wouldn't succeed. Something I found in this archive shortly before we met. I remember you looking pleased with yourself. And then, then you stuck whatever it was you'd found back on the shelf with a guilty look on your face. Have a guess what it was. Go on, it's not difficult. Where are we? The VHS section. Yes. And on this shelf, my dear Zoe, is the actual last remaining copy of my Hamlet. No, no, sorry, let's be generous. Ah, Hamlet. (laughs) An off-air recording made by one of those restoration team chaps on its repeat broadcast of 1602. You mean, you knew even before we set off that you were going to succeed? Because the videotape was evidence of that? Yes. (laughs) But more importantly, while this tape exists, history will stay on the course I set it on. A problem? Where is it? The tape. Is it not there? Where have you put it? Well, how could I have touched it? I've been with you the whole time. But I think I can guess who has. Oh, no. If you've messed this up for me... (laughs) I didn't tell you how we came to be here in the first place, did I? The doctor asked Jamie and I not to mention it because he wanted to seem just like another browsing academic, rather than someone hunting down the dangerous time eddy that had dragged the TARDIS off course. It's gone! Yes. Obviously, that videotape was the cause of the anomaly. I expect it's safely locked away in the Doctor's TARDIS now. No, I mean, the entire timeline's gone! There's no record of my Hamlet! Oh, good. At last. Do you have to be so smug? I can't help it. It's just so satisfying seeing a plan come together, as you briefly knew yourself. All that work? For nothing? Not completely for nothing. You still have the film recording and the sensor clips and the telesnaps. Oh, no, you don't. I do. Give them back! I don't think so. These are going to be destroyed, along with your videotape. We don't want the timeline suffering a relapse. Not now it's looking so much better. Vandal! Philistine! Zoe! Zoe! The Doctor, did you still want to speak to him? (laughs) You rotten cheat! (laughs) No hard feelings. It really has been the most instructive day out. (laughs) Instructive? Oh, yes. I've learned something I'll never forget. Companions are more trouble than they're worth. The doctor's welcome to you. Vandal! First time! Goodbye. And then I heard you calling, so I came back to the TARDIS. 
It's very funny that you two thought I'd been sat in the library all that time. Well, Jamie, I suppose I must have done all that in one afternoon, if that's how long I've been gone. It felt longer, but, well, time is relative. Doctor, I... I was only trying to learn from your example. I know what I did was wrong, but proud. Oh, oh, thank you, Doctor. That means more to me than you know. Oh, shush, Jamie. I'm not being soppy. So this is the recording that was causing the time anomaly. But what are all these other tapes? Pathé News. Conspiracy. Classic TV moments with Rufus Hound. I see. So it wasn't just the play itself. It was all these other items that refer to it. Very thorough, Doctor. So now you're going to destroy them all, yes? A shame. Well, perhaps. But we can't run the risk of this happening again. Good. I'm glad you agree. No, Jamie, we can't watch the play first. Oh, Doctor, tell him. Doctor? Oh, you're as bad as each other. I'm not going to watch it with you. I want you to know that I strongly disapprove. What? That actor there? Oh, yes. He is good, isn't he? Though he gets one of his lines wrong in Act 2, Scene 3. Oh, that's clumsy. See that hairy thing in the corner of the screen? That's called a boom mic. Doctor Who, The Prince of Denmark, was written by Paul Morris. Zoe Herriot was played by Wendy Padbury. The Monk, Rufus Hound. The Announcer, Nigel Fares. Other parts were played by members of the cast. The script editor was Jacqueline Rayner. The producer was Dominic G. Martin. The director was Nigel Fares. Executive producers were Nicholas Briggs and Jason Haig Ellery. Hello, I'm Dominic G. Martin, and I was the producer on The Prince of Denmark, and this is my first production that I've produced. Prince of Denmark, I believe, is a really radical and extraordinarily fun story, and a tour de force for Rufus Hound and Randy Pabry. They were both absolutely on their A-game, thanks to some excellent directing by Nigel Fares, and a gorgeous script by Paul Morris. And again, 
it's something we could really thank Ian for because he was the mastermind in working with Paul and getting the script made. I just helped put it all together. <laughs> Hello, I'm Paul Morris and I wrote Doctor Who, The Prince of Denmark. This story came about um, several years ago now, um, back when Ian Atkins was the producer of The Companion Chronicles. One day he suggested I could write another one and use the meddling monk because um, I think I think I'm right in saying Ian had brought the monk back um, in a short trip in a new incarnation played by Rufus Hound and it had gone down very well. So um, yeah, everyone at Big Finish was keen to use use the character more. And the other thing Ian had was a specific idea for a story. Um, I mean, we did try to think of something original, but, but this one idea, which was very simple and actually came from a line of dialogue in the, the monk's first appearance on television, The Time Meddler, it, we just didn't think we could do any better than that. And that was one of the monk's long-held ambitions for things he could do to improve the history of the planet Earth was to have Shakespeare's Hamlet premiere on television, which uh, <laughs> you seem to think would be an improvement. Hello, I'm Nigel Fares. I directed and played small parts in the production. I think my basic approach to directing it was, um, let's have fun. We recorded Wendy and Rufus on separate days, which is uh, so often the case these days, thanks to um, COVID, etc., <laughs> etc., et um, which meant that, we, for me, I got two goes at it. You know, I got to play all the meddling monk parts uh, and Rufus's other roles on one day, and then I got to play all of Wendy's uh, parts um, on, on, on another. Um, so I saw it from both angles, really, as an actor, uh, which always helps as a director as well. Um, I think I the, the role of director is to enter into the piece um, through every single character. Oh, I love this script. Um... Uh, funnily enough, I got the script, uh, which I hadn't, I got the script in the morning, I hadn't opened it, I went into Stratford in the afternoon, and I was walking up Henley Street, past Shakespeare's birthplace, with my sister, going for a cup of coffee, so, because Stratford is my hometown, it's where I was born, so it was quite, it was quite funny to then open it up later in the day and discover, I love this script, I think it's hilarious. I think it's I think it's really funny. Uh, recording this episode was a complete joy. It's lovely to record things with full casts, but it's equally lovely to just dig in with one other person and have a bit of a romp from beginning to end telling a great story. So the joy of being half a dozen folks whilst at the same time getting to be the monk a lot was tremendous fun. My first reaction upon reading the script was... Oh, this is rather lovely. This is one where the monk rather takes the lead. And of course, by the end of it has, you know, been beaten into second place. But yeah, uh, very, very pleasing to do a story where the monk is maybe the one putting his best foot forward rather than playing second fiddle. (laughs) 